Hi, I am Jada Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair here on WORT. And I have a request. Madison Magazine is running their annual Best of Madison competition. And I need you to go nominate A Public Affair as the best podcast Madison has to offer. All you have to do is go to tinyurl.com slash vote W-O-R-T. Nominations are open all throughout this month, and you can nominate us every single day. Now, the actual voting doesn't take place till June, but if we're not nominated, we can't be voted on. So go nominate us. Again, that's tinyurl.com slash vote W-O-R-T. Thanks so much, and I'm so excited for everyone to know that A Public Affair is the best podcast in Madison. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound. Good afternoon, Madison. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is A Public Affair. I'm in the studio in person with Carousel. How are you doing, Carousel? Hey, everybody. It's so great to be here with you, Ali. Anytime I get to team up with Carousel, it's like... It's the best. It's fun. It's like fun and it's like special. It's like a nice way to hang out with a friend that I don't get to see enough. And it is Winter Pledge Drive, which is why Carousel is is hanging out with me. And if you want to support the show, give us a call at 608-256-200 and then extension 1. Uh, we have a special guest in the studio with me today. That is Carousel, who will like ring a little bell and celebrate that oh, yeah. you are keeping us, you know, you're keeping the lights on here at WORT. Um, I've been a supporter of WORT. I did my first interview here when I was like 16 years old. Um, and so I hope that you all can show us some love. I'm going to get us started today with a, you know, whopping cash donation of $50. Woo! Brought, I brought Wait. cash just just for this. So. And can I hit the bell then? Let's test it out. Woo-woo! So join me in supporting WORT. Give us a call at 608-256-200 and then extension 1. So it's 256-2001, extension 1. Oh, my God. Thank you. So confusing. Too many numbers. Oh. That's why you're it's the, like the love and support of this <laughs> of this space. So we're we're fifty dollars in and a minute into the show, and that's and you know since I'm our first donor, I'm like I feel entitled to to get us moving into a great conversation on today's show. I'm talking with my, Michael P. Jeffries about his forthcoming book, Black and Queer on Campus. His new book offers an inside look at life of queer college students on campuses across the United States. He sheds light on both the struggles that black queer college students face at both PWIs and HBCUs, but he also tells beautiful stories about the joy and community these students find in each other. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for letting us talk about your book. Um, I want to I want to start with, you know, it is the last day of February. It's the last day of Black History Month. Um, and the end of this book is the last, you know, the last of this book is about the the future of, of black queer folks. And this is a really political book. And that's actually part of what I really loved about reading it is that you you talk about politics in a way that is very clear, very concise, um, very, you know, kind of factually almost feels bullet pointed. Um, and it. There was times where I was reading it where I was like, oh, I wish I could talk like this. Like, I wish I could be this clear. Um, why Why was it important to you to write this book? And why was it important to you to end on a note that looked to the future and looked to young people for solutions and answers? Yeah, thanks for the question. I mean, I think there are a couple of things in terms of the political environment that really shaped the book. One is that uh, I wrote this book or I was interviewing the students who were in it during the Trump era. And what we know about experiences of LGBTQ folk during the Trump era is really quite dispiriting. Um, Folks felt as if they had to hide their identity more than ever before. They felt they were reporting harassment and experiencing harassment more than prior to Trump being in the White House. And of course, there were all kinds of uh, demonstrations where white supremacists were emboldened uh, to harass and assault uh, people of color. So this was a very fraught time for many people from marginalized groups and for queer black folk, right, they were sort of getting it from all sides. So that was one thing is the political context was really kind of a fraught and dangerous moment. 
And on the flip side, we also had, you know, the thick of the Black Lives Matter movement. And that movement was founded by queer black women. So one of the things that I was interested in looking into was the extent to which the students in the book really identified Black Lives Matter as not only a movement for black liberation, but for queer black liberation. And of course, you know, when I you go into a project like this expecting to find one thing and and the responses that you get always surprise you. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about the responses that you were the most shocked by? I think I was surprised by the the candor um, that people brought to conversations with you and your ability to kind of really bring the voices of the of the folks you talk to into this book. I also thought you had a variety of really interesting strategies for honoring the identities of of folks who who show up in this book. Um, talk a little bit about about what it was like to to describe people in in their identities as as folks who you know, occupy multiple, multiple, multiple marginalized identities. Yeah. So I think the first thing to say is the way that I found the students to talk to was through reaching out to student organizations that were either queer people of color organizations or black and queer student organizations. So the folks that I speak with in the book are people who already identified one way or another as LGBTQ+. That's important because what we know is that black folk don't necessarily identify with those labels consistently or as readily as folks from other racial and ethnic groups in this country. So that's the first thing is it's a sample, but it's not inclusive of the entire queer black community. Having said that, what I found when I spoke with these folks is they were really talking about themselves in a variety of different ways, right? So I spoke with a few folks who identified as trans, a few folks who identified as queer, uh, non-binary, bisexual, gay, lesbian, really any sort of um, label that you might think would exist in that world. There was presence for that group in the book one way or another. And and what happens is when you speak to people from all these different walks of life is the full and rich diversity of queer black experiences is what comes out in this book. I mean, I think if there's one thing to take away from the conversations I had, it's that the stereotypes, like the kind of spectacular stereotype of fabulous black queerness, which is essential and historically rooted and beautiful and liberatory for many, many people, that is not the only way that queer black folk go about their business and lead, lead their lives. So, so I think that's one of the most important things is just revealing the diversity of this group is one of the great gifts that the students gave me. And then in terms of the future, um, you know, I think if there was truly a mix, some of the people that I talked with were able to kind of place their experiences in the long view of history and see a trajectory in particular for LGBTQ plus folk in this country that looked like it was moving in the right direction. However, right, they weren't necessarily able to see that trajectory for black folks in this country. So even among people who thought, well, uh, we have gay marriage now and we can kind of see that it's less of a big deal in many spaces than it used to be when it came to their gender identity or sexuality. those folks weren't able to point to things going on in the news that led them to believe that things were really getting better for black folks. So there's a really kind of a fraught sense of what the future could be, right? There's a capacity to imagine something so much better than we have because of movements from black, like Black Lives Matter, because of, you know, all the conversation about prison abolition and and things of that nature. But on the other hand, the reality was the day-to-day lives they were living, there weren't a lot of things they could point to to say racial justice is on the horizon. Mm. Thank you so much for speaking to that. And folks, in in you know, in theme with what we were just talking about, which is the future, if you want to guarantee the future of WRT with me and Carousel, all you have to do is give us a call at 256-2001. And then you, you know, you press one and you they patch you through and you can you, you can give with all the people here. Yeah. Yes. And there's some great folks like volunteering to support us today. So huge shout out to them. Shoot, yeah. Huge shout out to our our engineer and our producer, Jade and Ben. Um, we really we need your support to keep bringing you shows like this and having these kinds of conversations and featuring really important books and incredible authors. So give us a call. Carousel, why are you supporting WRT? Well, I mean, I think. 
WRT has themes to every pledge uh, season, and the theme this year, I think you just embodied it. It's about listening. And not only are we listening to this amazing author talk about this incredibly powerful and unique book that right these voices aren't something that you can find easily on the bookshelf already but the fact that stories of people um that aren't present are in this book and are being talked about right now on the show we're talking um you know with the author michael jeffries about the conversation that he's been having. This is what we do on WRT, that you can't do this anywhere else. And if you want to continue to support the listening and the conversations that are happening here that happen nowhere else, you can call and pledge at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. We have Lois and Gil and Steve ready to take your calls. I also want to remind everyone, you can pledge online, wortfm.org. You can... Um, Pledge, make a payment now, pledge to make a payment later, credit card checks <coughs> come in with cash. And we want six donors this hour. And we're already one down. Thank you, Ali. You've kicked us off. We are looking for five more donors. We have, you know, 45 minutes to get them. Not a problem, but please call. Support the amazing conversations we're having at area code 608-256-2001, extension 1. Back to our, our conversation, and I, I really appreciate that you talked about, like, we get to talk about books that you might not find easily. This book mm-hmm. is not even out yet. When when does this book, when, are you, when, is, when is your book out for, for everybody to, to get to read and participate in? The official publication date is March 21st, but it's available for pre-order. You can get it from NYU Press, your local bookseller, or some of the larger booksellers on the internet like Amazon and Barnes and Noble, things of that nature. You can get it now. Yeah. So if you want, you can read, you can join our book club. You can read Black and Queer on campus. Um, I think I, when I started this book, I was a little bit surprised by the very beginning and and your kind of outline of uh, Kamala Harris's leadership um, in, in terms of her support of the LGBTQ community. And you really outline her political career leading up to this moment. Why did you want to start there? Why was that kind of the the first, the the opening to what it means to be black and queer on campus right now today? Yeah, well, the place I start is by sort of going and looking at Kamala's record just a little bit. She has been at the center of a great deal of LGBTQ rights advocacy over the course of her career. Um, But interestingly enough, right, she attended an HBCU as an undergraduate. She went to Howard University. And what I'm trying to dig into is this kind of stereotype of black homophobia, Mm. right? The notion that black folks and black communities are virulently homophobic, so much more homophobic than the rest of society. And that's kind of really what's holding the gay rights movement back, right? Is the kind of backwardness, right, of uh, black folks when it comes to this issue, right? And we understand that's misdirection. We understand that if we're able to scapegoat black people, then we don't have to pay attention to all the institutional reasons for LGBTQ suffering and discrimination in this country, like the things in the medical establishment and all the laws that prevent LGBTQ folk from living their fullest lives. But I focus on the HBCU experience that Harris had because she's very vocal about the ways that that shaped her as a public figure and as a leader, right? So the question I'm sort of asking and provoking with the beginning of the book is, right? If black homophobia is really so horrible, how could it be that someone who emerged from Howard University became a leader on this issue, right? Mm -hmm. So that it it can't be, right? That there's something so strange and so backward about black culture that leads to dangerous homophobia. It must be that there's something going on on HBCU campuses and in other black spaces that actually allows queer black folk to speak and to connect with each other and to grow. So that's kind of how I kind of set the table for the book is looking at college experiences, not just at predominantly white institutions, but also at HBCUs when we think about how queer black folk are getting by as students. I think you also in in bringing her into the book, you you acknowledge that different generations of the black community have participated proactively 
in the the movement for LGBTQ rights long term and throughout history. Although it cannot be denied um, that homophobia exists within communities of color and and is is part of you know reality throughout the world. Um, I I guess I'm curious. Does it make sense to to compare you know homophobia within the the black community to homophobia within other communities? Yeah, look, I mean, I think we have to face these things head on, right? We can't we can't pretend as if the ways homophobia plays out and transphobia played out within the black community and black spaces is exactly the same as the way it plays out in other spaces, right? For example, if you take the experiences with religious cultures and church life. If you take that seriously as one of the pillars of black cultural life throughout the history of this country, which it has been, right? And to great positive effect, right? We wouldn't have had so many of the black liberation movements that we've had without religious institutions. But what the people in the book tell me, this isn't really about what I think, what the people in the book tell me is that when they look at kind of the roots of their own experiences and their own confrontations with homophobia, they can really trace it back to some of their experiences in in these religious spaces. So if we can't look at those issues, right, really seriously and say, how can it be that in black churches, we're hearing one thing at the pulpit, but we're seeing something totally different in the choir or with the music group when it comes to black queerness, right? If we can't address that dissonance face on, like meet that face to face and really try to get into why it is that black churches have been spaces for queer black expression for generations and yet they've also been spaces with for a rhetoric that ignores queer black experiences or tries to suppress them we're never going to get to the bottom of unmaking homophobia within black spaces and that's different a little bit from how it might play out in other spaces so i think we got to be able to keep both in mind right what's the broader legal and institutional context and what are the black cultural institutions that contribute to traditions of homophobia and transphobia within our own communities. I so greatly appreciate that. And I do think like it's a, a good opportunity to think about our or our own community, um, you know, and as a person who was born and raised in Madison, Wisconsin, I was told my whole life that Madison is a great place to be a member of the LGBTQ community and a horrific place to be black. Um, mm-hmm. And so you know, you, I think in, for, for a lot of the folks in your book, navigating their immediate safety within the entirety of their identity um, was a, a situation that they acknowledged caused stress um, and, and strain and, you know, isolation and a variety of other struggles. What was it like for you um, to kind of confront people as they reconciled the the harshness of their own identity, the harshness of being both black and queer. Yeah, I think that the example you just raised, um, where you kind of gave an example of a city that has a certain type of liberal uh, reputation, right, as like a liberal stronghold, right? And for that reason, it's often assumed that life for folks who have been discriminated against, been marginalized, in that in a, in a city like Madison would be better than right another kind of another kind of place. But when I spoke with students who attend predominantly white institutions with many of the same kind of reputations, they didn't really express a great deal of comfort. Um, they didn't really express a great deal of support either from the institution or from their classmates. And when they did talk about the environment for LGBTQ folk. It was very clear that race was influencing and inflecting LGBTQ culture on supposedly gay friendly campuses in ways that subordinated queer folks of color. And what I mean by that is if you look at what they told me was, if you look at the way those student groups were formed, like LGBTQ student groups on these campuses, the leadership of those groups, almost always white, the constituency of those groups, majority white. So the things they talked about in those spaces, whether it was just kind of cultural preoccupations or more political and advocacy topics, their priorities as black folk, as queer black folk, never really rose to the top, right, of the agenda of like queer activism in those kind of liberal strongholds, right? And that's a problem. And then socially, right, when they talked about the dating market, right, in those places, 
stereotypes of blackness and quote unquote dangerous black sexuality were everywhere in their experiences. Hmm. No matter what gender identity um, they were, they performed or were attached to or invested in. I mean, it was, it was widespread, right? The kind of stereotypes of aggression, uh, stereotypes of deviance that were connected to black sexuality. So both in a kind of social and romantic space and in a political space, they never felt as though um, black issues and black experiences were at the center of what it meant to be LGBTQ on predominantly white campuses. I really appreciate you speaking to that because I do think it's taken for granted in in communities like Madison or communities that consider themselves liberal and progressive that being LGBTQ, no matter who you are, um, is is accepted and supported and celebrated. Um, and I think it's a hard thing to reconcile that when you live in a community that, uh, you know, hasn't had the same level of commitment to racial justice, hasn't had the same level of commitment to black and brown people, hasn't had the same level of commitment to, you know, people living in poverty, um, that 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 you know, acceptance becomes performative and becomes something that only certain people can access. And I do think that that, again, leads us back to why we've got to support WORT 89.9 FM, um, because this is a space that elevates the voices of all kinds of people in our community. And so if you want to make sure that we continue to have this space, give us a call today at 608-256-2001, and then extension one will patch you through and you can make sure that that WORT is around to tell the stories of all kinds of people for a long time. And, and we're all volunteers here. Ali, you're a volunteer. I'm a volunteer. You know, everyone's just here working so hard to make sure that work keeps going forward and keeps providing the incredibly top quality conversations that don't happen anywhere else. I am loving this. I am so excited to be in the studio with you, Ali, and I just get to sit here and listen to this amazing, powerful, important conversation to remind so many of us that the stories that you hear do not tell the whole story, and there's so much more to it. And thank you so much for having this show today. And if you want to support the work that Ali and all of us are doing here at Wart, please give us a call at area code 608-256-2001, extension 1. You can also pledge online at WORTORG, um, WORTFM.org. And, um, yeah, you can pledge any amount that you want. But I think it's really important to remind people, you know, the passion that goes into bringing these conversations. You are such a, you know, community leader, Ali, and a voice that your voice isn't a voice that is heard enough in Madison and uh, Wisconsin and beyond. And I feel so privileged to be here with you today. And I hope everyone will join us in supporting. And, you know, if we get a next pledge, whatever the next pledge is, I'm going to match it. So I'm going to be pledge number three. If we can get supporter number two to come in, just give a call at area code 608-256-2001, extension one. I so, I so appreciate that. And I would say, I think like, Michael, it's such a, a gift to get to have this conversation with you and to get to bring in the voices of the people you spoke with. Um, and, and you spoke to, you know, young people who were really honest with you about what it was like for them to try to find community on campuses, what it was like for them to talk about their identity with friends and family. Um, you have some pretty revealing and intimate stories in this book. How did you develop the trust um, with folks you were interviewing to have these kinds of ca conversations about their lives? Thanks for the question. Um, it, it's an interesting situation because I wasn't able to build up long-term relationships with these folks. I was really visiting campuses for a couple of days at a time and having conversations, you know, a few a day. I would do a couple of interviews each day and then I would uh, fly back to, to Boston. Uh, I think one of the things that really helped was I was going through student organizations. So I was often in touch with either a faculty or staff person 
or a student leader. And I was able to explain the product of the book to them before I reached out to a lot of the students that I spoke with. So there was always, almost always like an intermediary who I had a longer conversation with first, who could then translate and explain and reach out to the students and put me in touch with them. But then I think, you know, once I got to be face to face with the folks that I spoke with, um, I think that I really wanted to hear their stories. I, I was coming at them with a list of topics that I, I hope to cover during the interviews, but I wasn't sitting there with a clipboard and like checking off question number one and checking off question number two. I was trying to have kind of an open conversation with them and really let them lead me where they wanted to go. And if you're able to do that, able to give up some control as an interviewer to the people that you're interviewing, that's what allows them to open up and feel comfortable more than anything else. You could design the most brilliant list of questions in the world, but if they feel like you're controlling them in some way, they're never going to give you any kind of answers um, that would be the most valuable. So what I try to do is really take a step back and allow them to speak. And I think the results really speak for themselves. I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful for the stories that they provided about their time, their time in college. Did writing this book make you reflect on the time period in which you were a young adult, the time period in which you were going to college, um, what it meant for you to come of age um, at a specific time politically? Oh, no question. Um, I, you know, the other thing is I approach this work very humbly because I'm not a member of the LGBTQ plus community. So though I am black, right, I'm not having the same kinds of experiences as the folks that I spoke with in the book. Um, but absolutely, you know, you kind of, I'll speak for myself, I sort of took for granted the age that I was living in, in the moment I was there. I was going to college in the uh, late 90s, early aughts. Uh, it was just a very different times in terms of the economy of this country. The uh, racial temperature of the country was wildly different. And LGBTQ rights were um, sort of bubbling beneath the surface as a political issue, but it didn't seem like one of the pressing issues of the day. I also went to one of these more kind of stereotypically liberal spaces. So we didn't have overt demonstrations of white supremacy. Uh, we didn't have overt demonstrations um, uh, arguing against women's reproductive freedom. We didn't have overt demonstrations on a near our campus um, arguing against gay marriage, right? We didn't, I was, I was insulated from so much of that rhetoric during the time that I was in school. Um, and to do these interviews during the Trump era, it was just a completely different vibe in the country and on the campuses. Mm. And one of the ways that it came up was when I would ask the students which political issues were most important to them at the time, right? you might think the stereotype was, well, they all must have said something about LGBTQ, LGBTQ rights. But they didn't all say that was the most important political issue for them at the time. Some of them talked about the climate crisis. Some of them talked about the immigration crisis, the immigration policy crisis. Immigration itself is not a crisis, but immigration policy crisis, right? Some of them talked about racial justice and incarceration. Um, there, are, there were so many fires that these folk felt like they were being confronted with and trying to put out on a day-to-day -day basis. And that really gave me an appreciation for the stability that I felt when I was a college student to explore my priorities and the things that were most important to me. I didn't feel like I was putting out political fires every five minutes the way so many of these students did. Not to mention the kind of underlying threat to democracy that we felt the entire time um, and that was brought into such, you know, stark depiction during the insurrection in, in January, right? So all of those things are swirling around these folk as they're trying to have a conversation and grow into their own identities. Mm, I, I, I feel like the older I get, and Carousel, I don't know if you feel this, but like the older I get, the more I feel responsible for, you know, listening to and thinking about the way young people are, are experiencing our political reality. Um, I, yes. th I think I am... I, I do find myself feeling like, oh, wow, I, I don't believe I grew up in the good old days, but it, it was really important to me that I had the right to make decisions about my own body as a teenager, that I had the right to have an abortion at the age of 16. Um, and I look now at this generation of young people who do not have that right in my community, and I think, 
wow, they're they're growing up in in a deeply different climate. Um, you have you have young, you know, kiddos. Yeah, I've got two teenagers at home. Yes, I I think like this book really prompts the the kinds of conversations you want to have with young people about what's going on in in your world. Carousel. Before we talk a little bit more about why folks should make sure to give us a call here at WORT eighty nine point nine FM. What is what is what does this conversation look like in your household? What do the young people in your life say about politics today? You know, I really appreciate um, that I feel young people are ready to have conversations that we were not having. And it reminds me that there is a level of suppression that we all grew up with and that hopefully like an onion, the layers get peeled back more and more and more. So there is more open and honest conversations. And it makes me stop and realize that, oh, I was suppressed and I didn't even realize it. Are my kids still suppressed? They look so, if I'm only comparing them to me, am I not acknowledging the struggles that they still face? So, you know, I'll have to tell you off afterwards, but we had a conversation with my daughter about consent this weekend and my husband, who's a, right, you know him as well, specifically mentioned you and talked about, oh, well, when this person wants to hug you, what does what has Ali taught us about, you know, consent? And, and, I, and I don't know where that came from. Maybe, maybe he knew I was pledge wrapping, so your name was floating in his brain. But this was a conversation we just had this weekend in my house. So now you sound like my kids. My daughter, whenever I go to talk to anyone about anything, she's like, are you going to be talking about consent? I'm like, right. it's not the only thing I talk about. But the, yeah, it's, it's like it's really important, though. You're the consent woman. I, I think, like, I do think, like, the, the interesting thing about this book, or often books about the LGBTQ community, is that when you ha- write about the LGBTQ community, often folks anticipate there's this element of sexually explicit um, content. That is not remotely true for for this book. You are talking to people about their gender. You are talking to people about their sexuality. Um, But this isn't a a book about sex. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how people talked about their identities authentically, um, their partnerships, their relationships authentically, and yet... It, there was no need to to sexualize um, the the folks as they talked about what what it meant to them to attend a specific university. Question. I mean, I think th- there are a few places in the book where people really did they just volunteered information about their sex life, right? What it was like to be in the dating sort of market that they were in, or um, you know, I I spoke with a couple of young folk on campus who who said that, you know, kind of on the down low, folk would come up to them and say like, well, how do you do it? You know what I mean? Like, like where they were kind of educating people who were still questioning and weren't completely comfortable or, or weren't kind of fully formed in their LGBTQ identity yet. So, so there is some of that in the book, but it's not the kind of dominant theme of many of the conversations that I had. And I think that what you said about the ways that it comes out, the way that sexuality presents itself is really important because you said that they're able to talk about their relationships. And I think we need to understand sexuality not as um, uh, uh, a kind of script, but as a kind of social negotiation that we're all kind of dealing with every day. So when they talk about sexuality, they talk about what it's like to have a serious partner for the first time and want to introduce them to their parents, but knowing that they can't. When they talk about sexuality, they talk about how how stressful it is for them to ride the bus and not know how how loose they can be with their public displays of affection. When they talk about sexuality, they talk about the calculus of how much should I put on social media? Because my, my, my partner wants to see our relationship reflected on social media, but there are other people that follow me that I know are not going to be cool with me putting myself out there like that. So those are all conversations around sexuality, kind of public uh, announcements of sexuality, really. And the ways that they're negotiating them are not about kind of sensationalizing the act of sex sex itself, but about trying to figure out how do I navigate my social world, right, given 
that my sexuality is important to me and gives me and, and I want to be clear, like it's making these folks happy. Like this is not this is not something where like the whole book is about the shame of gay sex. That's not what this book is about. It's about how do I embrace the joy and comfort and validation that I get in these relationships in a way that still keeps me safe, maintains other relationships in other parts of my life and kind of allows me to manage my day to day, uh, you know, uh, commitments. I think also when you're talking about young people, young people have to worry about their ability to get a job in the future, their ability to have a home, their their ability to navigate a world that is positioning itself um, against LGBTQ folks. And and what you describe in the book is a hostile political climate, um, not a passive political climate, not an, a less than supportive political climate, a climate in which trans youth are, are being attacked, in which books that feature LGBTQ folks are being banned. Um, did you have any hesitation around writing this book because of some of the, the backlash to uh, talking about LGBTQ folks that has become so normalized in, in the last few years? The, the idea that um, LGBTQ kids should not be out at school, that rainbow flags, you know, should should be banned from, you know, the, the, the school premises, those those sorts of ideas are are taking hold across the country aggressively. Um, and, and how did that factor in to you writing this book? I mean, I have to say it really didn't. Like this, this stuff is too important to me personally and politically to let, you know, the political issues of the day <laughs> frighten me <laughs> when it comes to writing what I want to write. I'm fortunate in that I get to do this for a living. I'm a, you know, I'm a professor, a professional researcher and a professional writer. And if I don't use that that privilege that I have, that I'm not doing anybody any good. But again, like it's really not about my ability or desire to write the book. Um, it's about the generosity of the students. That's this this book doesn't happen without their generosity. Mm. So I have an obligation then to present what they told me as faithfully and honestly as I can. Right, not because it's something that I wanted to do because it's reflective of the real world. And if, if I can do that, right, any kind of backlash or, or criticism of the book, legitimate or otherwise, that's something for me to take on. But I owe too much to the students who took time out of their day to have the conversation with me to, you know, to kind of edit or censor myself in any way writing the book. It's, it's too important and it's, it's overdue. That's the other thing is like, there are not many books that have this range of black queer voices in them. Certainly not this age group, certainly not at both HBCUs and predominantly white campuses and universities. And, you know, we would like to think that we all have the most like brilliant and original ideas for a book. But like to me, this was an easy idea. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just, just that nobody had done it yet. So so this isn't this project is is overdue. And I, I'm just I'm trying to serve right the voice the people that i spoke with in the book more more than anything i think one of the things that was really interesting to me in reading the book is the very intense difference between your voice as a writer and the voices of the the people you are talking to and your ability to really capture the the ways in which people speak um, about themselves and reflect on on who they are um, and also then the the very clear and descriptive and pointed nature of of how you described the atmosphere in which in which these folks were coming of age and, and going to college. You are listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. I am joined today by Carousel because it is Pledge Week. Yahoo! It's so great to be here. I'm so excited. We just got a pledge. A web pledge online, an anonymous pledge uh, from Madison, and that's uh, some of their favorite shows uh, include us and Saturday meetings and so many great things. So that means we are now at pledge number three. We have three down. So excited. Area code 608-256-2001. Extension 1 is how you can call and support. Um, you can also go online at wortfm.org. And I want to talk about the answer that we just heard, um, the conversation that we just heard 
uh, between you and um, our guest, Michael Jeffries, uh, about the generosity that is this book and that is this conversation, right? This is a gift. These are not individuals that have time in their day to sit down and have a conversation with you. And, you know, Michael Jeffries has gone around and collected and thoughtfully, you know, put all this together. It, it's a gift. It, and it's sort of an act of defiance to put this together and to refuse to not be a voice that isn't being heard. And these are the conversations that you are bringing us here on Ward. Please call and support so that we can continue to have these conversations at area code 608-256-2001, extension one. The book is Black and Queer on Campus. Uh, the author is Michael P. Jeffries. And we're, we're talking about this book, and I love that you called it a gift, because one of the other things I thought about um, was, you know, the expectation of people of color to educate um, mm -hmm. other people about what it's like to be a person of color. And I I write this post almost every year in, in during Black History Month because Black History Month is the month that I get asked to work for free the most, um, which I'm always like, hey guys, like I just don't know if this like works with the theme of the month and like the history and I just don't know if we're all getting like the moral of the story. Um, but I I thought about this book as alleviating some of that work of constantly answering peace, people's questions, of constantly explaining yourself. I thought, you know, I, I would recommend this book to somebody who goes, I don't want to um, have an extractionary relationship with my friends who e exist in the intersection of what it means to be queer and what it means to be black. But I do want to better understand what they're experiencing and going through. Um, did you did you feel like this book had a, a specific audience you wanted to read it? Did you want folks who don't identify as queer and black to read this book and, and be able to better empathize with what folks who are queer and black are experiencing? Or did you want folks who are queer and black to see themselves in these pages and feel recognized? Or, or are you looking for both and all and more? Yeah, thanks for the question. I want everyone to read it. I mean, that's the honest answer to the question. I think there are some things in there. Um, and the, these are things that we've known for a long time that those of us who are in leadership positions at schools, colleges and universities should take into account. I mean, the point you just raised about how the burden sometimes falls on the students themselves or on people of color to educate the broader community. This is something that I heard over and over again during the interviews, in particular from students at HBCUs. You know, the, the students at HBCUs weren't telling me like, it, it's dangerous for me to walk around campus because it's so homophobic. But what they were saying was like, there was a lot of conversation about how the institution needs to catch up mm. to where we are. Um, educating people about terminology, about uh, sexual health, about mental health. Uh, this was a burden that the students increasingly felt as though they were taking on more than they needed to. Uh, so that was kind of one piece of it is, uh, you know, the students at HBCUs feeling as if they were leading in ways that really they shouldn't have had to. So that was one thing. But when it came to audience and the question of, well, who do I want to read it? The answer is everyone. And the more I talked to students, right, the more, you know, I kept, I kept having experiences where they would thank me at the end of the interview. And it's like, I'm thanking them. You know, you know what I mean? Like, again, they're the ones who gave their time. There is no book without their contributions. But the more students I spoke with, the more I realized um, how many of them have been hungry to read something like this? And this is the perfect time in their lives to do it because mm. they are in college, because they are in women's and gender studies classes, um, because they are participating in student organizations where they're sharing reading with each other and talking about the things they're doing inside and outside of class. So I think that for the people in the book and other queer black folk who are around that age, I'm hopeful that they'll be able to understand the community that they're a part of and the fact that they're not alone as they go through these experiences, even if those experiences aren't well represented or they're not in the college brochure or there aren't a lot of depictions of this on television. When we see black college students in television and movies, the diverse the diversity of voices and the range of voices in the book shows like this is a rich and uh, broad community of people that they belong to. And I think they were able to sit with that realization and find value and comfort in that realization that like, they're a critical mass and they have so much to give and have given so much to their schools. 
I I really love the way you describe that. And I also want to acknowledge that, you know, when I was reading this book, the group of people I really hoped would get a hold of this book is high school students. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know there's a lot of controversy about high school students reading about what it means to be a, a member of the LGBTQ community. But I think there's also this misperception amongst young people who are in high school that going to college is going to finally be the space where you just get to be yourself, right? Um, where it's just easy to to be who you are. And I think reconciling, you know, sexual violence on campus, reconciling the 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 reality of of income on campus and and those sorts of factors um, is something that this book very thoughtfully addresses. Have you had any pushback around who should, who shouldn't, Um, read this book, who should, who shouldn't be talking about what it means to be queer on campus as a person who does not identify as a member of of the LGBTQ community. um, Have folks said, yo, you are overstepping. You're out of line. You need to get back into your lane. I haven't had that yet, but, you know, I expect at some point for some of that criticism to come. And uh, though, of course, it doesn't feel good for any of us to be criticized. It's something that we have to, we have to be able to at least think about and accept and reckon with when we write books like this, right? Because especially when I'm talking about it, right? There's, there's a way in which my voice, even though I, I do the best I can to honor the voices of the people in the book, there's a way in which my voice comes to stand in as a substitute for the voices that are really the most important, right? So I always try to be mindful of that. And when I have the opportunity to give talks about the book sort of um, later on, you know, one of the things I want to be sure to encourage folk to do is you know, read the kind of excerpts that are in there, because the book is it's not just a series like here's one full interview and then there's another full interview. It's it's bits and pieces. It's excerpts from the 65 interviews that I did with my analysis kind of mixed in. But what I try to do is not just make each excerpt like one or two sentences long. I really want to give space in the book for these folks to tell their stories. And there are other great anthologies of interviews, you know, um, one of the trailblazers in this field is a writer called E. Patrick Johnson, who has compiled incredible oral histories of queer Black folk, in particular queer Black folk in the South. So that's the other thing that I hope this book does, is it introduces people to the legacy of queer Black scholarship and the richness of queer Black voices in books beyond just the one they're reading at the time. Well, the book is Black and Queer and on campus, and you are listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is a public affair. Carousel is here with me. Yes. And we are asking folks to pledge, and we have three people who are volunteering to answer your call. So please, you know, keep them busy. Give them a call. Lois, uh, Gil, and Steve are here. We also have food donated by Ian's Pizza. So huge thank you to Lois, Gil, Steve, and Ian's Pizza for um, supporting all the work that we're doing. We want to hear that phone ring. We have three pledges so far. We want three more. Give us a call at area code 608-256-2001, extension 1, or wortfm.org. You can pledge at any dollar amount at any level matters. Uh, There are gifts, a sticker set at the $30 level, um, progressive magazine at $47, just $4 a month, and you get a subscription to Progressive Magazine. There are so many others at the $100 level. We have our brand new WORT long sleeve t-shirts. So they're pretty fabulous. You can um, pick out the gift that you want. You don't have to take any gift. Everything is perfect. Just call and support the work that we're doing at area code 608-256-2001 extension 1 or wortfm.org. Jumping back into the conversation, thank you so much, Carousel, for all your support and for for loving WORT with me for a very long time. Michael, you are a dean of academic affairs. You're a professor of American studies at Wesley College. Um, You hold a Ph.D. from Harvard University. How did writing this book influence you within your role? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it started with my experiences as a professor because there are students in my class who, you know, you, you build relationships with them as advisors or as just as, as advisees or as uh, students in your class. And you can kind of ask them what it's like to, uh, to go to school on your campus. And you start hearing some of the same things over and over again, right? Or you start wondering, well, why aren't they as visible in some spaces as they might be in other spaces? 
So I think that really a lot of the spark from the book came from my experience in the classroom. And then as an administrator, you know, I think some of the lessons that I point out toward the end of the book are, are really quite simple and intuitive, but it's worth saying them out loud. Like um, we have to uh, listen to our students. It doesn't mean that we can do every single thing that our students ask us to do as college leaders, but if we don't have open lines of communication, we're gonna miss some things that are really doable that would make a huge, huge difference. Um, we have to recruit students in ways that show them that they are not only welcome, but that they are valued on our campuses. So when I spoke with the students about the ways they made their decision to go to college, they really didn't tell me, well, when I went to this campus, it was so obvious how visible and happy queer black folk were, right? Like to the contrary, like they said, well, I saw, I might've seen some diversity, but I didn't really see a lot of LGBTQ diversity. So we need to think about diversity and recruiting in a really different way that also comes uh, to be really important when we're thinking about recruiting faculty and staff, you have to make sure you build deep and diverse pools when you're hiring new people to teach and work at a college so that people from these groups have mentors and other folks on campus that they can look up to and, and, and believe that they can share their experiences with. We have to make sure that our uh, uh, mental health services and health services in general are educated and capable when it comes to dealing with specific issues that present themselves within these communities. And we have to make sure that our academic program prioritizes women's and gender studies and studies of sexuality in the ways those areas need to be prioritized, right? You can't have an academic program that treats those disciplines as like, you know, secondary citizen status. Like we, we really need to understand how much exciting work there is going on in those spaces and how many of our students are gravitating toward them. We're missing an opportunity if we don't build those programs up and invest in them the same way we invest in some of the more traditional disciplines. Oh, that is that it's it's inspiring to hear you talk about the impact that this has had on the way that you're that you're thinking about the work and that I think so many more people, you know, would deeply benefit <laughs> deeply benefit from like getting out and having these kinds of conversations because it is humanizing to connect with another person about, you know, what it's like for them. Um, you are listening to WORT on 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. I want to give a huge shout out to Carousel for joining me today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me and for a, a fabulous show and a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much to Michael P. Jeffries for writing an incredible book. You can pre-order Black and Queer on campus right now, and I recommend that you do it. And I want to remind everyone, it is never too late to pledge. We're here all week, but you can still pledge and get your pledge in for this show at area code 608-256-2001, extension 1. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Ali.